you know, and the gas <laughs> prices are so high. <laughs> and I was like, I can work from home today. I got a mic here. <coughs> the, uh, so. it's, you know, what's funny is I was just looking at the gas prices. I think they're like $4.55 here right now. I was like, everybody forgot about that. These things are, exp- this joint keeps going up. Everybody was like outraged at first, like, oh my goodness, the gas prices are so high. And then they just like just just straight forgot. Like, oh, whatever. And 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 what's crazy is the two most important factors for for societal flourishing are clean water and cheap energy. Or you know, that's the that's what actually takes people out of poverty. And uh wait, wait, clean water and and cheap cheap energy. Energy take people out of poverty. Okay. Yeah, and so gasoline it did more to take pe- the world out of poverty than anything in the history of the world, and now we're trying to get rid of gasoline and make it expensive. And... That was because uh, there's plenty of it. It's not right? like what was it? That was Rockefeller. Rockefeller. Yeah, he was the one who had all the care. At first, it was kerosene. You got to remember, right? So with Rockefeller, you, he was the oil guy, and then kerosene yeah. was the thing because that's how we we did it. We lit everything through kerosene, and that was the main thing. And then so you have Henry Ford over here on the other side um, who is needing this form of fuel to run vehicles. But I think it was Rockefeller was like, what do we do with this runoff thing called gasoline? (laughs) Right. Right. It was like it was useless. And then they figure out a way to use gasoline for vehicles to run. That was affordable and efficient. Right. for, For vehicles and not really for much else. They were like, hey. Let's sell it to four. <laughs> it's kind of an amazing story. It really is. Yeah. The the history, there's a, some great histories of capitalism out there that are really fun to read. So. Especially off of things that are considered like useless for the most part. Like it was, you know, they were, it, nobody was thinking like, oh man, if only, now we think about gasoline. But before, you know, early, the turn of the century, nobody's, Gasoline was nothing. Yep. It was all about kerosene. Yeah. Now, I grew up in a house where we had a kerosene heater. I remember taking the aluminum container, filling it up with kerosene at the because they had kerosene right next to yeah. the gas growing yep. up and filling it up with kerosene in our container and taking it home and hearing the little juggle filling up with kerosene. And we had the little heater with the little wick, the light, yeah. and we had a kerosene heater in your living room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had a heating oil, um, not not growing up, but the first place I brought my kids home from the hospital to um, was a, it was a heating oil heater and yeah, classic. But I mean, I think that's what we don't, we don't realize what has actually, you know, now I think my up, upper middle class folks especially feel guilty about um having having more than other people because of that metaphysical gnosticism that says if i have more than another person then i'm saying i am declaring that i'm a better person i'm more human than other people they feel guilty and so they're easy to manipulate and so people are happy to sell them indulgences like an electric car here's an right. indulgence that'll help you feel less guilty <laughs> Hey, take your privilege and spin it over here on me. Right. Spin <laughs> it over here on on the planet or spin it over here on, you know, now the what what month is it now? Asian American Pacific Islander 
month or something like that. So Is it really? I was, well, I was watching NBA last night because love love me some NBA. Speaking of somebody who brought people out of poverty, the inventor of basketball, right? Like, but uh, but <laughs> that's, a, that's a different story. The uh, not really. It's Asian. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's not because I mean, think about like the guy because he's, he's running the YMCA, inventing basketball, and he did more probably than just about anyone to bring um my uh to bring inner city minority groups out of poverty out of poverty right you just think of the amount of uh the amount of money that has shifted hands be- because of basketball i think that's a guy that he was just being faithful to god right he invented it be- so that to bring kids in so that he could share the gospel with them and it would really work it was really effective you know he would he invented basketball. People would come in, they'd play basketball, and then he'd sit down and have a Bible study with them after the game. And right, and he's basically shifted and changed um, enormous amounts of wealth in the world and didn't realize that's what he was doing at the time. He was just being faithful to God. We never know the consequences uh, of what our faith is going to or what our faithfulness is going to do. It's just, you, know, you, I've been... you just do your job well, and that's that's what you do settle into the place that you're supposed to be in and then you do that exactly that's actually what burke burke thought too that was i was just man so um i've been void at talking to you this week the good news is is that it's only been tuesday so it's only tuesday (laughs) so i don't have to avoid too much but i've been avoiding talking to you because i haven't wanted to have this show yet apart from actually doing it live and so but you've sent me some things over via text message that were like i'm like oh i'm not responding to that (laughs) because <laughs> I know, I know that I'm gonna. But we started so last week, last week when we were talking about um, Chaucer and Burke. Which, by the way, man, <sighs> reading Chaucer makes you more human. I just want to say that right now. Um, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But then we got to Burke, and we we left Burke. It kind of went on to Chaucer and then pointed back to Burke with Chaucer. Right. And you were like, man, we got to go back and talk about Burke again because we didn't even get into all of Burke. And I right. was like, okay. But one of the things, but speaking about the equality, equity and equality and that whole kind of um, the guilt of having wealth or the guilt of being further along in society like middle class families have, there is, there's a guilt to that. And, it's, and after reading Burke, I think I understand it a lot more we have a very messed up understanding of what we talk about when we mean equal, like when yeah. people are, have equal rights. We we've taken the idea and concept of equal rights and even conservatives. And we're like, Oh man, if I have, then the other person doesn't have, therefore we're not equal. We'll even think like that with conservatives. And we see this amount of wealth accumulated and we're like, man, this person has accumulated so much wealth and these people don't have wealth. And the only way that he must've gotten all that wealth is he had to do something wrong to get it, but right. nobody should have that much wealth and no, no one should have that little of a wealth. And we, and we think like that, you know, and it's like, you know, there are, there are blessings given to people who do certain things, who think certain ways and they become a huge blessing to other people. And just because these two people have different amount of things, doesn't mean that their equality at the end of the day, isn't the same under the law. So most of the time when we're talking about, equal we're really talking about equal under the law not equal in all things because all men are equal in all things and one of the ways that burke starts talking about that if i get too far ahead just pull me back 
But one of the ways that Burke talks about this, or is it uh, Kirk? I can't remember who it, because Russell Kirk is kind of doing this thing where he, he's explaining Burke and then he talks and inserts his own little thing into Burke. Um, but he, the way that, that I think he uses Burke to explain this is that if a person invests, you know, $5, he has every right to the $5 of his investment. If another person invests, you know, $300, he has every right to his $300 investment. That's all his. But the person who invested five and the person who invested 300 have a different amount of value inside of the actual market. <laughs> it's not the same, but it, and it would be unfair and unequal to give the, and he's a, he's making this assumption, the person with five, the, the, the kitty of 300 of value, right? No, no, he gets the five of value, right? That's what he gets. The 300 guy gets the 300 of whatever that is in value of the market. We don't just, Un, un, we just don't evenly give up the market and say that's what being fair is. No, no, no. It's as to what they have invested in the market and what is actually theirs that value is what they have in the market. And to think any different about it isn't uh, isn't helping us create and promote what equality is, <laughs> right? That was really helpful because I think right now we think when we talk about equality and we talk about rights and we talk about uh, particularly rights right now, we don't know rights as it pertains to what, right? Or what rights actually are, right? You know? And so it was, it was interesting reading Burke and saying, oh my goodness, we are so far from thinking like this. Even as conservatives, we still have that drift to say, or think that maybe, maybe that person deserves a little more, should have a little more, or something's wrong with the system if they don't have the same amount at the same time. You know, and we're even playing the scales in that way too. Yeah, and and a big part of that I think is because like Burke makes it really clear that um so he I mean he basically was the inventor of what we call civil rights, right? He he was the inventor of he he and for him it was a, the civil rights um fight in his day was for the Irish Catholics. So he's a, he's a Protestant, um, but the Catholics are not were not given um, voting rights. They couldn't become lawyers. They couldn't become doctors. They couldn't go to college. You know, the Catholics, um, the Catholics, yeah, the the in Ireland, the Irish Catholics, um, and so, be, uh, and some some of it is because of some conflicts that. I mean, the, the, there's a history behind it. It's not like one day they woke up and said, hey, no more of that, right? There there were some attempts to, um, the, there were attempts to overthrow the government. There were, you know, different, there were conspiracies um, by different uh, Roman Catholics and things. But Burke said, you can't actually divide the citizenry up that way. The citizens of the British Empire have the same rights, the rights of the British Empire, or the, the rights of a British citizen. You don't get to say the, that that citizen and that citizen get different rights. Right. Uh, and so so it, so the, the way we think of and talk about civil rights was his it was Bur is because of Burke, right? So he and and this is this is one of the things that I think is always really interesting is when you read the history of civil rights 
it's always the conservatives fighting for civil rights against the progressives. The progressives then turn around and claim their the victory as theirs after they get defeated. Right. And so you see this over and yeah. over and over. Um the, you know the, the so Burke he he's inventing this understanding of civil rights based on a, his Christian understanding of of he, what what's called natural law. It it's it's the older and I know we've talked about this some, but that older understanding of natural law that there is that God invent that God created the world with certain fundamental principles. Um, certain fundamental moral principles, moral uh, moral laws that are true, uh, separate and apart from us. You know, we that we don't create them. So, um, and that part of that, you know, and that central to that is where that's where our rights derive from is because of who God says we are as people made in His image. Yeah. And then, um, and then. Also, that's derived from our citizenship, which is a historical reality, right? It's a, if you, so there's, there's a, you know, a big fight uh, in that's begins in Burke's day that has to do with slavery and the slave trade. And, you know, so Burke, um, Burke is arguing uh, that slavery is not legal on anything that is British soil. Um, and so the, uh, so he, you know, he, he wants the colonies to disallow slavery completely. And he just says the color of the skin has no effect on the rights, right? If they're standing on British soil, they're not slaves, right? That's right. how, that's how it works, right? And so, and there was a big case in England in Burke's day where there was a, a slave that escaped the slave ship, made it to shore. And when they tried to bring him back, the police said, no, you're not allowed to bring him back. He's free now because he's standing on free soil. There's no slavery. Slavery is not an acknowledged institution in, in the British empire um, on British soil. And so, um, <laughs> and this causes oh, all sorts of problems in the relationship between America. Cause, cause Burke was, in favor of the American colonists' legal arguments for the British for the American Revolution, but he also says that there's no way to reconcile your arguments. We can't we can't actually answer your arguments because you've legalized sla- in the colonies that have legalized slavery because the because we can't act because if you to fix to solve the argument we'd have to give you representation but mm. you have left the common law tradition by allowing slavery by legalizing slavery you've left the common law tradition and so we there's no way for us to bring you back in and give you representation again okay in so the common law tradition so he says basically you're an alien nation at this point you're not you're not acting like a Le- brother or sister nation legally there's no way for yeah, us legally. to reconcile that yeah yeah so you're a colony and but there's no way for us to recognize your legal standing in in British the British common law tradition once you've legalized slavery. So it just wouldn't it doesn't make any sense. We that that you we, you would have to. Um, so and, and so he, that, is, he says the the best thing to do is just to let them go. Right at this point, once they've America legalized go? slavery, let America go. 
Yeah. Now he also, but he also argued in favor of their rights as English citizens for representation if they're going to be taxed. Right? You can't tax a, a citizen of the uh, an Englishman. You can't tax an Englishman without his consent. Right? Without his representation. Without representation on how the money's going to be spent. So he said, "You that is a true legal argument that they're making." Right. And so on that side, he supported the American Revolution, but he said, but so long as the, there are colonies that have slavery, there's no way to reinsert them into a representative government because some of their citizens are being kept out of the representation that they're asking for. Well, well, that's a oxymoron. They're not citizens. Then right. that's <laughs> so. But here's the deal, but the, though. Like, but, the, but that's so. His definition his of citizenship, though, yeah, it is the traditional legal definition, which is you have uh, your feet on the soil and a stake in the land, right? Mm. So he said that that the the Africans that are brought to America once they have their feet on their soil and have a stake in the in the land. Then they they should be citizens. Right? Okay. He's saying you're asking for for the rights of a citizenship while not giving it, and so he said the best thing to do is to let them go. So there's two things there. One one is I, I don't want to forget these two because that asks that begs the question about according to Burke, what will we look at the southern border as, right? Because now we have a people, a group running there with their feet on the soil and they're getting here and they're actually getting jobs and working and so on and so forth. So do we now consider those people citizens because of their um, illegitimate way of getting here, but they have, they have illegitimate way of getting here and crossing the border, but they have their feet on the soil and they have their, a stake in the land now because of the way that they're working. So that's one thing. The other thing is, do do you think Burke is picking up on the idea of personhood that our Supreme Court justices have refused to pick up on? So Burke, when he's talking about the slave who is comes into British soil and touches down the land, he's he's identifying a form of personhood that is that transcends uh, that is that's inside of the common law tradition, right? Like right. this is a person. Feed in the soil, investment in the land. They are, we treat them like citizens, right? And it's not so. It's, it's, the question isn't whether or not they're a person or not. We we know they're a person. That's acknowledged, and because they are a person, our common law tradition says we treat them as such. Our Supreme yeah. Court justice has refused to answer that question. Really, in, in Dred Scott, in <laughs> Roe v. Wade, right? Um, should yeah. Obergefell, well, you can and- even say. Right. Well, and I th- I think that is like that. That's the f- one of the most fundamental questions is what what is a person and what what gives them legal standing, right? Does their personhood give them legal standing? Is the legal standing something that's granted by the government, right? Or is you know is it a jurisdiction question, or is it a metaphysical question that we're yeah asking? And that's what, and that is actually that is a hard question because you can have somebody who's jur- who is everybody acknowledges is a person, but then say, but do we have juris? Does this court have jurisdiction over this particular person? Right. So, and well, this that- is, I mean, jurisdiction is not something that we even really understand. 
Have, have we talked about the definition of the word opinion? I can't remember now. It doesn't hurt to talk about it again because if you can't remember, yeah. it means that we haven't talked about it enough. <laughs> right. So opinion has to do with the. Um, I mean, the, the original definition has to do with the uh, the authority over a jurisdiction making a decision within their jurisdiction, right? So that's why we still call it the opinion of the court, right? The opinion of this court. And that has to do with jurisdiction. So everything within the jurisdiction of that court has to abide by the opinions of the court, right? So I have jurisdiction over my tastes, right? I like this, you know, I, I like vanilla ice cream. I like, um, you know, Doritos or I have opinion. My it's, so those are my opinions because I have jurisdiction over those things. But if I start to say, well, it's my opinion that, um, people should be able to be thrown off of cliffs. If I don't like their hair color, then I, then that no longer makes any sense because I don't have that kind of jurisdiction. Right? So I, I, my, um, talking about opinions um, has to do with jurisdiction of a particular authority over a particular sphere. Mm. Now, when we start talking about personhood, the difficulty has to do with uh, citizenship and and jurisdiction. So the state of, of uh, Montana doesn't have jurisdiction over... California, right? right? Or doesn't have jurisdiction over Texas. So the courts of the state of Montana, when they make a decision, it has to do with Montana. The Supreme Court um, is supposed to just have jurisdiction over re it, relationships between states as, um, as well as whether or not states are, um, their, their jurisdiction is limited to the constitutional reach does this what does did did a court overstep its jurisdiction right is what the supreme court's supposed to be deciding so it can say yes this this particular decision by the say the state of montana um, or a court in the state of montana overstepped its jurisdiction it doesn't have so the, and the but the constitution is what is supposed to define the federal jurisdiction, right? These mm -hmm. are the things that, that, so when it comes to personhood, um, the, the question of jurisdiction as well as metaphysics are both supposed, are, are there are, are both in play, right? So, um, and this is where, you know, Burke calls, um, he, he, he says something like the, uh, a politician is supposed to be a practical philosopher or he's supposed to understand philosophically uh, things like natural law, things like citizenship, things like personhood, things like metaphysics, and then um, apply them within the sphere of political power, political authority. Uh, and we, <laughs> we don't have politicians like that anymore, right? Our politicians aren't, philosophical philosophically thinking so he actually lost his first um he he was elect burke was elected and then um he when there was a vote coming up he voted what he thought was best 
and his the the people that had voted him in called him back and said, "We need you to explain to us why you voted against our interests." He said, "Because it would have been wrong to vote in your interests because it would have taken it, that bill would have taken advantage of other people and and taken their rights from them." Um, and so he lost the next election, but he's got this beautiful speech where he says, it's not my job to, uh, to you, you don't send off somebody to represent you th- expecting them to always keep your interests in mind. You send somebody off expecting them to do what's right, right? And before God and before, um, be- before God, I, I can say I, I voted on what was right and it would have been wrong to do what you asked because the masses don't make right and wrong. It's a beautiful See? speech. So, but we don't have politicians like that anymore. No, because we actually have a democracy, not a representative republic. That's 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 right. what I, I've been noticing that more and more. You know, um, the conservative movement is supposed to look at Burke as their forefather, as their father in the conservative movement. I don't know if Burke would recognize them as children. You know, no. no I mean, there are there are people that have tried to revive a Burkean conservatism. But it's so out of fashion, like it's so out of favor because there are certain things that – so he believes in a ruling class, for example. Right? Aristocrats. Com- aristocrats, yeah. And, it, but he, and it's not like he believes in them like we ought to have one. He says it's, it is inescapable, inescapable that we will have aristocrats. And so they'll either come from a, a lineage in which there there is an expectation – uh, of good education, of moral upbringing, yeah. uh, he's he's got this whole list of things that that an aristocrat ought to have, right? The ability to uh, understand business, to think outside their own interests, to think in terms of the interests, of, virtue, uh, yeah, of, of virtue, and to recognize the the uh, blessings and curses of God in history, you know, those yeah. sorts of things. That that a true a good aristocrat ought to have, and if and you know in his mind, if you're going to have aristocrats, one way or the other, you may as well raise them up on purpose, right? Mm. So because the other option is to end up with aristocrats that are there by coercion, by coercion, right, by coercive means, who then will use coercion uh, as their main uh, method, their main means of getting things done and they'll think selfishly they'll think about themselves and think in terms of of interests and interest groups and all all that and burke hates all that right he he said we've you've got to think in terms of of uh being virtuous and then doing what's right whether the masses want it or not right that's what a good aristocrat does and he says part of the, it's an inescapable concept you're gonna have a ruling class yeah. you may as well have one on purpose well yeah part of the, his definition this is what was interesting too is because i haven't heard this before as far as aristocrat but part of his definition of aristocrat was uh, a person who can control his vote and one other right like if you look at arist- aristocracies as that and plus the type of man that they're going to be he's like if you have a room full of 20 25 republicans you're going to have three aristocrats, right? <laughs> you yeah, have at yeah. least three because they're going to say, all right, here's where I'm moving. Here's why I'm moving there. And people are going to gather around that one of three people 
in a room and there you have aristocracy, right? Um, right. And, and which is going to be followed by who's going to be the most noble, who, who might even look the best, who, who dressed the best, who has the most money. Yeah. He, he's like, it's an inescapable concept that I've thought about before. But as I look at American culture, bro, we got aristocrats all over the place. Right. Yeah. What was Trump? Right. We got, we have aristocrats. The problem is we recognize our aristocrats too late. And, and so we end up with basically Machiavellian aristocrats uh-huh. you know, that think in terms of power, coercion, and the gathering of power it, it, rather than right. in terms of service, right? So the, the central um, through the, so Burke kind of has phases in his life, but that the middle phase of his life where he spent doing politics, working in on the civil rights of the, uh, of the Irish Catholics, the civil rights of, um, of the American colonies for a short time, but it wasn't, it wasn't huge, but it was a short time in his life. And then uh, he spent a lot of energy years working for the civil rights of the people of India. Right. So, which, which was a colony of, of the British empire at the time. So, but for his, so his main opponent in for the civil rights of Ireland was called um, the, the, uh, the English speaking son of Machiavelli, right? He was, (laughs) And, and that wasn't considered an insult the way it is now because yeah. Machiavellian philosophy, as it worked its way out, showed us what it really was, right? It, we, mm. we, we live post-Stalin, post-Mao, post-Pol uh, Pot, right? These Machiavellians that um, – and we now realize, oh, that leads to mass death. But at the time, um, that they called it real politic. Right. It was it was just the way that politics worked. Whoever had whoever could gather the most power got to define reality. Oh, right. And that's Ah. so he so he and and Burke identifies it as a as a metaphysical error. Right. He he's the one that identifies Machiavelli uh, as a metaphor. And he and he combines Rousseau. He shows that Rousseau was actually fundamentally Machiavellian, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was the philosopher behind the French Revolution. And that's so um, the last book Burke wrote was Reflections on the Revolution in France, where he basically predicted the 20th century would be the bloodiest, the bloodiest century in the history of the world because of the philosophy, because of the metaphysics of Rousseau and the real politic philosophy of Machiavelli coming together into this revolutionary mindset. So he's, can you can you break that down a little bit? When you said the metaphysics of Rousseau coming into um, a marriage with Machiavellian politics, kind of just break that down a little bit. When you say what is it, what is Rousseau's metaphysic? What does he believe about man? And then what is that that marries to so well with the revolution? Yeah. So Jean Jacques Rousseau's take on man was that um, his that he doesn't have a nature that comes from within. Right, that what he has is so he's a, he's this kind of blank slate nature, and then society imposes onto him mm. um, his his nature, right? So his nature is something that comes from outside. So when you're born into a society, then you're born into a competition, and that competition causes mankind to 
um, to do terrible, evil things. If um, you take him, him out of society, take him out of out and let him just be a, a savage, an uncivilized human that just de- just deals directly with nature, deals directly with you know, the woods, deals directly with the jungle, then you would actually get something very noble because the there is a because that blank slate nature um, has a noble bent that is removed by society that society takes away the nobility so that the and so then you end up with so he said if you just get this get society out of the way um then people are basically good but society <laughs> causes them to be bad right we and we still see this everywhere the problem is that people have too much money the problem is that they don't have enough money the problem is that the systems of society are causing them to do this that or that evil right so that understanding that there's not a internal nature right there's not a human nature that people are acting out of or a fallen nature that burke you know that's burke's argument is this is just a simple straightforward denial of christianity denial mm. and then a denial of uh, of the fallen nature of man which chesterton says is the one doctrine of christianity that's scientifically verifiable right? that that mankind has fallen yeah um, so uh so you've got that metaphysic of mankind combined with the real politic metaphysic of uh of machiavelli that says that since there is no nature right since mankind doesn't have a nature um, in mm. fact there's not a nature behind anything there's everything is in constant flux if you can gather enough power into then you can uh change reality right you're defined reality whoever has the most power gets to define what is real and what is not real or define the what everything actually is and so machiavelli's um take is that that the best place to gather that power is political uh, authority is into a political structure and so uh that s- the political structure is about gathering enough power to define reality or redefine reality to make it into whatever it is that you want and so burke spends his life basically arguing that that um that the idealism um of the of different revolutionaries is going to destroy the world right? is going to end in world war. Right. So <laughs> um, be, and, and it's because they, they think, well, I've got to get enough power to, and then I can fix mankind. I can fix society. If I have enough power, I can fix the individual. If I have enough corporate power gathered. Right. And so the revolutions are going to do that. And he says the, all they're going to do is tear down the fences that have been put up by our forefathers to protect us from ourselves. Right. They're going to tear down all of the things in, in the name of saving mankind, in the name of an ideal, in the name of establishing uh, a, a perfect s- scenario. They're going to tear down all of the fences that we built to protect us from ourselves, which is it, basically exactly what happened. I was as you're, So I think it's page 44 in uh, The Conservative Mind. Uh, 
this is kind of where he summarizes it, basically saying what you just said. He says, no one generation could link with another the way that they're going. Like they can't link with another because they're destroying all the fences. That's been, so basically what it is, a removal of the covenantal blessing of history that God has given you. Right? right. And to be able to see from that and to adjust. And what the revolution does is completely destroy that fence, like you were just saying, and removes it from the next generation so that they don't know where the borders are, where the markers are, how, you know, this is, this is why we've, you know, when we talk with David Fowler, this is why common law is really so important is because it is a library of history of how we've gotten here and what's worked best for us to flourish as human beings, right? That's part of what's inside the right. common law tradition. So what we're talking about when you remove that, then uh, Burke says, uh, man would become little better than flies of a summer. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh man. Like, and it's so true. Like I just looking, man, you, you, you look at the fallout that Roe v. Wade has caused in the black community over the time period of, I'll give you 1619. Okay. But you look at from 1619 all the way up until now, there has not been a more devastating effect to black culture than Roe v. Wade. Right. More yeah. devastating effect to the point. Now we have a generation that has no connection whatsoever to their past, to who they right. were, their people, and they've been severed. And so you have this huge community disconnected from fatherhood, which is what fatherhood is supposed to do is right. That's Deuteronomy fathers. Right. You teach your kids about the covenantal blessing that I have with you, that I brought you out of Egypt, that I were your God and you became my people and I gave you laws and I protected you and I fed you and I clothed you. This is our covenant agreement. Tell your kids that, right? So right. that your kids have a connection at the end of the day to this covenant that we have. But we've just like with this revolution kind of destroyed this whole this whole relationship that we have historically with our ancestors as well. well and, I mean if I and if I told you that in the county of LA, sixty six percent of all arrests were black people and they were only they only made up thirteen percent of the population, you know, you would say, Oh my gosh, they are definitely being targeted. That that's not the arrest percentage. That's the abortion percentage, right? Of the black community, right? So two out of every three abortions is a black baby. Mm. They only make up thirteen percent of the population. They they the they're oh. they're they're the black black folks were have been purposefully targeted by Planned Parenthood by by the because it was a begun as a white supremacist organization right purpose purposefully targeted for removal and it's this machiavellian idea that if you have enough power and you can get the votes then it's that it's not wrong right it becomes it's it's right it's no longer a the, so the whole idea of a majority taking advantage of a minority is Machiavellian, right? And that and that's what the conservative movement was started out of. A hey, you can't actually do that, right? This the the conservative party in terms of party politics, because parties, political parties, actually began in 
Burke's lifetime. Right? There weren't political parties before that. Interesting. Right? So political parties grow up in this era because um, you have the breakdown of the older divisions of society that have to do with nobility and and gentry land ownership um the the, oh, interesting. the seriously organized the the purposefully organized um historically organized society is beginning to break down right and it, and some of that just has to do with the fact that now you've got lords that can't make enough money and merchants that now are making more and more money and the merchants are buying up the lordships right and so um because the lords have to sell their own lordship because they don't have enough money and they don't have enough income right so you've got a major upheaval that's being caused by the industrial revolution the um people are leaving the the land and move to moving to the city you've got all of this major societal upheaval well in the middle of it they're trying to figure out how do we keep organized and and political parties is one of the way that things begin to be organized. So he becomes one of the founders of the, the early founders of the Whig party. And then he ends up being ejected later in life by the Whig party. Cause they got some power and they got corrupt and he stood up against it. And they, they, um, so he gets kicked out for standing by the original principles of the party, um, the conservative principles of the party, which have to do with uh, the, that, that uh, what's called moral, realism right that there is a metaphysical reality to right and wrong mm. that it's not a power game that it's not that you can't just shift your understanding of right and wrong according to the times right either people have uh the the rights that are attached to the being made in the image of god right we owe he, he and he he talks about this that that we are born owing people things right owing mm. our neighbors honor owing uh, owing our rulers obedience owing we're, we're born uh, owing our ancestors uh gratitude. Honor and glory right yeah. gratitude right we, so we're just born with we're born with the debt of love on us already and, well, and, and love go ahead and, and owing a future to our progeny. That's something else, too, that right. was like, no, no, you don't squander then all these blessings and not create a meritocracy for the future. Right. Like you are creating merit for the next generation. That was huge. And for Burke as well. Right. Right. So that so it's this understanding of us as historical beings and moral realism that Burke um, was defending over against this new wave of a metaphysical um the of Machiavelli, machiavellian metaphysic uh that said whoever has the most power defines reality defines right and wrong that right and wrong isn't something that is the same no matter what it shifts and changes depending on who has the power and as the Whig party gained power they became more machiavellian and he stood up against them publicly mm. he's in speeches in writings and they ended up ejecting him from the party uh, so he he proved with his life that he actually believed these principles or right? that he so he fought for um he he fought for the oppressed over and over and over but he fought in a particular way right he didn't fight in a revolutionary way he fought in a reform 
sort of way. So he actually, so India is a really good example. He said it's not our job to apply English law to the the to the people of India. It's our job to establish Indian law on just principle, right? Mm. And to to bring the gospel to them, knowing that Indian law, the the the, the historic law of the Indian people is what it's our is is actually our job to uphold even though they had conquered them, right? So they conquered the Indian the Indian nation. And he said, the rights of a Christian uh, conqueror do, do not, or the rights of a conqueror um, have to be uh, sub- subdued or put in line with, with our Christian duty to the Indian people. Right. And so mm. um, we don't get, so, we, so he, he brought uh, 16 charges against, the man who ran the 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 ran India, uh, sixteen charges against him, um, and he he said, "But you're not being charged simply because you broke all the laws of England. You broke the laws of India, and that's where you were, right?" And so he so um, and, and then he broke the law of God, right? So um, the law of England, he said, is the is this combination of the roman law the anglo-saxon law um, all brought in submission to the kingdom of the law of the kingdom of god he said and our and the, this man's job was to do the same thing to the laws of india right so to bring the laws of india into conversation now with the the laws of the empire of the british empire and um then submit them to to the kingdom of god so the, this understanding that people are historic creatures and that morality is real right and that we're and that over time when a, a moral people a christian and, uh, and a christian people will bring their laws into alignment with moral reality um historically and not re- in a revolutionary way was the was the way um that he was a conservative. <laughs> that's, that's why, that's why it's called the founding of that. That's why he's called the grandfather of conservatism. It's interesting because I think when you, we, we talked about Alfred the great, um, that's what he did, right? Like that's mm-hmm. exactly how he understood. It's funny because when we talk to Christians and conservatives, um, there is much more of an imperialistic approach to this, almost like a Chinese form of thinking imperial you know uh versus a conservative christian form of thinking about this because right. i think what we what we have is our tribalism is as important as um this is interesting is as important revealed will of god right <laughs> uh, yeah. and so that we have to make people more american and that's like, but that's not the objective, right? Right, exactly. And that's the, but it. So tribalism and imperialism actually reinforce one another because they have the same metaphysical assumptions about Which is, pa- power and humanity. Right. So uh, the um, that that being a part of my group is what makes you human. Is what makes me human, and it what makes makes you human. You're not a part of my group, so you don't have the same human rights as me. Right. So, um, and an empire, uh, the, you've got citizens and non-citizens and 
once you conquer people, once you conquer non-citizens, then they can have the rights of citizens, but you have to conquer them first. And you're allowed to conquer them because they're not human yet. Right. Mm. You're allowed. So you're allowed to take their stuff. Like if I go out into my backyard and there's an alligator that has claimed a portion of my yard, I can move it, kill it, throw it out, um, wrestle it, you know, whatever. And because it's not human, that alligator doesn't have human rights. An emperor that thinks, I'm going to go get that piece and make it a part of my empire is treating those people as if they are not yet human. Once they're a part of the, the empire and they become citizens, then they can be made, then they become human. But that our, our citizenship, our, the, the claims of legal jurisdiction are wrapped up in the, in the metaphysics of whether or not somebody is a human or not, mm. both in empire and in, um, and in tribalism, right? In a tribal mindset. Uh, so versus what Burke is arguing for is that the people of India are, they're human and they have a God-given jurisdiction over their land and over themselves, right? Over So individuals have a God-given jurisdiction over themselves. Families have a God-given jurisdiction and then nations have a God-given jurisdiction. Cities, counties, you know, there's, there's God-given jurisdictions. And the people of India have that. And that we don't, that it, that, that is not undone by the, the British empire conquering them right now. Um, I, 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 I couldn't find a lot of information about whether or not Burke was in favor of imperialism or not. Cause he sort of steps into the scene when there's already a British empire, but he definitely argues that the people of India, that the, um, that the, people that we have conquered, they actually have a God-given jurisdiction over their land and that their laws are legal, right? Their laws remain legal, that you you actually, the, that they are attached to the land themselves, that the mm. jurisdiction of the Indian people is a real jurisdiction and you don't get to just say, now it's gone, right? That's not the way legal works, right? That, that the, and so um, his, so he he wants the uh, the people of the nation of India's laws to begin being brought into um, into the conversation with the the laws of the British Empire, and it, and so yeah, it's, and to bring them into so you have laws that are here, and so what he's assuming though is that there is a general revelation. It, um, that operates in his metaphysical understanding has to be there's a general revelation that operates in the world that even pagan man can see this and operate in that way. And, and where we find that general revelation that comports to God's standards and God's law and the tradition of common law, we need to, those things need to be unified and where they don't, those things need to fall away because they're not, it's not matured yet. Is that fair enough to say right. this hasn't? Yeah. But there's a legal way to get there's rid a, of bad laws. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So so I, I want to go back because I asked the two questions. I did the horrible thing as an interviewer. You should never do this <laughs> is ask two questions, two questions at the same time. Yeah, I always ask one, um, but I do it sometimes when I don't have time. But the other question I was asking about for Burke, speaking of citizenship, a people whose feet are on the ground and have investment in the land. 
And I asked you, how then do you think Burke would look at what we have happening in our, particularly our Southern borders? Right. They've got people who are crossing over the border illegally, feet are on the ground. And over time they have investment in the land. What do you do now? Yeah. Well, there's two, there's two issues though. Cause there's the, what do you do now? And then what do you do with the border itself? Right. Yeah. So, sure. Right. So the, what do you do now? Um, traditionally, the answer has been that um, people that are born here should be granted citizenship. Yeah. Right. And that people that want citizenship should be able to become citizens in a straightforward way. We have destroyed both of those things. Right. So uh, we have Gnosticized citizenship away from the soil and made it about some, some other thing, right? So, um, so you can have somebody that's a third generation, fourth generation person born in America that isn't, is, isn't a citizen. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, but what we've done is, is we've made the path to citizenship, um, complicated and dangerous, Right. So be, and it's the, what makes it dangerous is that it shifts and changes, right? So you don't actually have the consistency where you know what you're going to get, right? So if you know, so law that's isn't a citizen, law. The, yeah, the, exactly. The law is not treated. Uh, you, you don't have equal uh, protection under the law. So um, if you've got, if you know, Hey, the way to citizenship is to go to that office right there and begin the application process. And if I do that, then, um, and I complete the application process and I take my uh, covenant vows to, as a citizen, then I can become a citizen. Um, then, uh, then people will do that. If you don't know whether or not this day, if you show up there, you're going to get arrested or not. Right. You might, you might not. The next thing you know is you have uh, you've cre you have created a black market of non citizen space, right? So you've and that's what... a, you've you've incentivized a certain form of of how to gain citizenship one way or another. Yeah, yeah, and so um, or how to uh, how why to avoid citizenship. Or, right? I'm so, sorry, yeah, how to how to yeah, get inside yeah. the country without of without having to actually go through the process of citizenship. Right. So I, yeah. um, so we lived down in California, right in the salad bowl of the world, right? So you've got all of the, all of the farms along there. And, um, we had, uh, a, a man in our church who they had a, a, a big berry farm and he was one of the central, he was one of the scientists that developed new raspberries and new strawberries, you know, he was a really brilliant guy. And, but he said that they, so they, their farm was a Christian owned farm. And so, um, they had, uh, they hired pickers, right? So people that come up and they, they're, they move around, they hired pickers and, um, every year and they provided housing, they provided, uh, but they also kept a doctor and a dentist on staff for the farm. And so while you were there, you got, uh, all your medical and dental and everything. And so, cause it's easier than deal with insurance. You just have a doctor and a dentist that you have on staff. And, and, uh, 
um, it, get, take, take care of people to, you know, and, and, um, you pay. And he said, but one of the other things we do is we make sure we give them all of their paychecks. And I was like, well, what does that even, what do you mean? He said, well, one of the unfortunate practices that a lot of, uh, that a lot of the, um, farmers do is when it comes time, they finish their last, uh, round picking and they don't tell them which is going to be their last. And then they, um, instead of the last paycheck to everybody, they call the, uh, immigrant police and the, and a raid happens and everybody runs for it and they never have to give their last paycheck to anybody. I was like, that's, Wow. People do that? He's like, yes. And he, I mean, he's just like, it's evil, right? It's it's evil. It's the that's the way a non-Christian runs a farm down there, though, is that's the expectation is that um you've got this weird relationship um with the uh, it's the ICE. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the ICE. Ice, yeah. Um and uh and he said it's just it's really, really wicked. He said, but said some of those people have their workers permits right they have their the, they're there legally said but it's not worth it to risk so they run anyway right because you're you 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 know that justice is not guaranteed right and so you make a run for it right and um and so he said so why would they become citizens it's not like justice is rolling down um like waters right so so it's a really comp it's a a lot more complicated than we think because it's not as if um the elite people come across it illegally uh and then it's just oh yeah there there's a clear distinction right you've got folks that have been here for three generations they own a house that's what i mean yeah they own a house they paid cash with it because they worked hard they saved they um, they, and then, uh, and then they, one day they get arrested by the ICE and sent back, uh, sent, sent back, but they, they're, they're just dropped off in a foreign land. They don't even speak Spanish, Spanish well, anymore, right? after three generations. Yeah. yeah that's so uh, then are those people, so you would say, according to Burke's tradition, those people, they're citizens, they're citizens. Yep. There's, they have, they, they're, um, feeder here and they have a stake in they have a stake in it right so um now and and the the way to citizenship um was it wasn't as complicated back then though i mean we you didn't have the bureau so bureaucracy wasn't invented yet that's a, i think that's probably a good way to put it right bureaucracy is something that gets invented um on purpose that's what's crazy this is an italian fascist who invents bureaucracy thinking he's saving the world um where where you have uh instead of offices that are personal with uh with authority you have um you you have hired people hirelings um that whose job it is is to get pay, you know get people's paperwork in order and and get the 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 right get people to move through and get the right stamps in the right spot right and then um you know then you have to give them the thing that they have accomplished and i think it's I mean, my, I have a, I have a theory that the that the metaphysic of Machiavelli actually requires the, bureaucracy. The bureaucracy, yeah, um, because it's a bureaucratic metaphysic, right? It's a it's a it's an understanding that that uh, that the nature of the world is fundamentally bureaucratic, right? Whereas in Christianity, 
It's not, right? We have a personal God, right? We, we, God doesn't say, here's the, here is the boxes you need to check when, once you get all these things taken care of, once you put these things in order, then come back to me and then I'll accept you, right? Well, yeah, God, it was that kind of, it was that kind of bureaucracy that wouldn't allow black people to vote in America. Right. Exactly. exactly. It's being legal. So it was legal, but bureaucracy, right? Right. But there's a bureaucracy that gets in the way and that bureauc- bureaucracy is a manipulable power structure right? and that, that you can make it into whatever you want, right? It's, it's, it's a belief that there's not a real, uh, that, that there's not a real structure to the world, that it's something that we have to create and add to it, right? So if you remember, um, Kant said that our ideas impress, uh, they impress onto the world an organization, right? So the, the organization of the world comes out of our ideas, right? Or out of our concepts, right? Uh, so, um, and bureaucracy is saying that the organization of society, the organization of the power structures of society are something that we create and then impress onto the world. Whereas the, an older understanding or a Christian understanding is that it's a, that there is personal authority and responsibility um, that is given to certain people within their particular sphere, within their particular jurisdiction, and they are personally responsible for it, right? That, that, um, and they don't get to say, define what their jurisdiction is. They don't define what, what they can and can't use their power for in terms of their authority, right? That's all defined for them. And then they wear that office. They wear that particular jurisdiction or authority, um, but it, they don't define it. That And that is derived from an understanding that fundamental reality is defined by God, right? That God is the one who uh, is that way. And so, and that the, and the good news of the gospel is that, Jesus died on the cross personally for his people, right? To save the world. Jesus is the one who did it. So we come to him um, and don't expect, or we come to him and there are no bureaucratic hoops to jump through. He is personally saying to us, Mm. well done, my good and faithful servant. He is personally saying to us, I know your name. I know that I have a name for you that no one else knows or has. I speak to you personally. I promise you personally. I baptize you personally. Right? I feed you at the table personally. That that there isn't there aren't bureaucratic hoops to jump through. Um, that that Jesus is the high priest. That is the one who stands between us and the Father. Right. So. That that understanding of the personal rule of the world, that it's not a clock that is wound up and let go, that it's, that it's not a, um, it, it's not a mass of chaos that our concepts organize, right? But it, it's personally ruled and defined by the Father, Son, and the Spirit personally. So, okay. So, 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 so Jason, what does that have to do with immigration? <laughs> <laughs> well, so what it has to do with immigration is that you, that a person that comes across the border, you don't get to define them, right? That God is the one who defines them. And so their, their citizenship is a historical reality. 
that we acknowledge. It's not something that we that we get to say okay. that we get to define. Okay, so their their citizenship is a historical reality. Is that what you said? Yeah. That, that we don't get to define. Right. Yeah, the only thing that we get to define is whether or not that citizenship is in America or in Chile or Mexico or Trinidad. Right. So they crop. So there's a real border that I as a governor have an office over and exercising and, has been de- right? Right. And, and that it's with a responsibility to protect. Right. And so right. it's the government and the civil magistrate, your local civil magistrate, as well as the federal government in this particular situation, are both responsible for borders. Mm-hmm. Right. And so right. someone so, who So is, yeah, because you, you were you were asking about what do we do with the people that are already here? Oh, well, I'm thinking of both. Though. I'm thinking and, of people who the, have So the question over. of what do you do with your borders, though, that's that is also a reality that's defined by God historically, and not by us. Okay, granted, I mean, that's there's no argument there. But my question is, so I think we worked with the third generation person who's here. We see that they've invested inside of American society. Their feet are on the soil, and they have stake in the land. You got somebody who has just gotten over here within the last year or two. Um, I mean, we've had a run. We've seen 10,000 people marching across the American border or trying to anyway. Um, We've seen an influx in the last 50, 60 years. uh, I think in the last two years, we've seen uh, last year, 2020, 2022, 2021. Was it 1.4 million people influx right into America? Almost 2 million people or something like that. Just coming right through. Right. What do you do with what do you do with that? Are those people well, American citizens because they got a job now or what? So this and so this is this is the problem. You have this and this is why it's so important that the authority is actually personal. And um because this because this is why it causes problems to vote in somebody who has bad metaphysics. So because mm. you have somebody saying at the very top. Come on in. We're happy to have you. And there will be no issue. You know, you're welcome. And then purposefully pulling people off of the border so that there's no longer any protections <laughs> right, at right, the border, right. right? So you you don't have a well-defined border, right? And you have people saying, hey, you can come in. But there's there are layer remember there's layered jurisdictions legally in America but then also in, in God's economy so you've got the the this is where you have difficulties so whose job is it to protect the border federal government that's part of their constitutional job the states that are border states right that's part of their their job and then the counties that yeah. are border counties right so you've got and I would the sheriff, even I would even add individuals who have property lines. I would go to them and say individuals that are there, they have property lines. And this is my property at this point. Right. Um, yeah. I get to I th- protect I th- that sphere. I think that they have that, that there is no longer individually owned property on federal borders. I, I, I think that that is something that, so, so the federal border is now there's a width on either mm, on the, between the which border, were, between, property lines there's no per, on... personal property yeah so well, um, well okay wait, wait, but hold on <laughs> if you I... have personal property and people are coming through then you have that responsibility 
well, wherever the line where the federal property ends yeah. and my property begins, there's still a border there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? right. So there's so so personal so there's personal jurisdiction or familial jurisdiction because it's not really it's not a it, there's a personal head of the family, but it's a family Yeah, yeah. Jur- I, it's I a grant family that. jurisdiction. Yeah. I grant that. So um uh so but here's the difficulty is the federal government has taken they take over and then they say hey we're pulling back everybody's welcome we're not going to finish building this wall now whether the wall was a good idea in the first place or not they have they send a real message by it being partly constructed and stopped right yeah right um then then you have the um the states saying well okay we'll protect it except for the federal government's not giving the money like they're they used to and they're not giving the support they used to so that's a problem right. um, and and then the sheriffs that have tried to stand up and say okay well then we'll take care of it have been lampooned attacked yeah. to, you know gone after um right. so what do you, what do you do at that point um you, you know the you have um i mean you have personal familial people doing the best they can um you have you know the Arizona um Arizona uh militia has formed that's trying to protect the border there's right. a great show about it coming out on lore tv soon you should go check out american recon it's amazing um yeah. but so you have people trying to figure out how do we protect this border because it's not like you say well okay we're going to open up the border and all of the all of the uh all all of the people that are just looking for better opportunities for their family are going to say, okay, well, we'll come across, right? You get, you get some of those people. You also get people, you know, that um, bringing that that's where, you know, all of the fentanyl in the country comes across the Mexican border. You, you've got all of the, the drugs and the tra- human trafficking, right? All of that stuff continues to happen uh, along the borders. And now we've got unprotected borders now ideally right what you have is gates right so that you know the people that are coming you know jesus says that the people that use the door are the ones that are friends of the family right so um Mm, that's how that's how you can tell who um who's friends of the family so so you have you have gates that are welcoming that say hey we're we we want tourists to come across we want people that are interested in working people that are interested in being citizens here's the way to do it we we want you to come um that's not a bad it's not a bad thing Im- immigration um historically is a huge blessing that's right. when the immigration is is uh has has um channels through which it's it's easy to become a citizen it's, it's been a huge blessing to our country uh, because Population is a blessing, right? Jesus, God just says straightforward: a king with no population is cursed. <laughs> right? Right. A king, yeah. So, so you want, um, but the the problem is we don't we don't treat um, citizenship as if it's a real thing. We don't treat people as if their humanity is a real thing. And so, when they're not in our jurisdiction then then they're easy to take advantage of. They don't have equal protection under the law and we live in a time and in a place where the people in power don't want to give equal protection under the law 
And so they do what they can to keep people in a place where they're easy to take advantage of. And that's what a lot of our immigration policies do. Right. They it keep it people in a place where they're easy to take advantage of. And, and more than one way, they use them as voting blocks. They use them, get them hooked to their own political drugs and so on and so forth. But still, overall, would Burke consider those people citizens? They're here six months. Yeah, what, is it, what does it mean to have your feet on the soil and your investment in you know, the land? So at what point then do we say, okay, those people who came here last year, that illegals, we have a messed up border. Do we have a position now as conservatives, the way that Burke will look at it is say, you know what? We have to say those people are citizens. I, I mean, I, I think what you do is you, 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 what you have to do is say, here, here is the easy way for you to become a citizen, right? Because now we do have a significant amount of bureaucracy. You've got a lot of, you know, that, that, um, there's so you could locally, I think, say, Hey, you know, I'm, uh, they, they pay taxes. They, you know, they, all this. So they're, they're citizens, but there's a sit, there's a state citizenship that amounts to a federal citizenship. Although I hope we never get federal papers, <laughs> even though that's being pushed for all over. You know what your social security number is? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, <laughs> you got a social security great, number, bro. I gotta take you up to. There's a a great. Um, it's a bar and a tobacco shop up in Coeur d'Alene. Oh, Marcus is uh, telling me about Marcus, this. Yeah, place. so any their Wi-Fi password is taxation is theft, <laughs> and, I, and I and I and I'm not a libertarian, but Marcus is. So as soon as I, <laughs> or I, he's more libertarian than me, maybe. But anyway, I, I I was like, hey, do you have Wi-Fi? He's like, yeah, here's a password. I texted Marcus. Hey, Marcus, you got to come check this place out. <laughs> but it's a it's it's a cool it's a cool shop. But um, I think there's a there's a federal overreach um, that is that is a reality when it comes to our citizenship right now. That we have that I don't know how what it's going to look like to roll it back. Um, it's gonna it's it will be rolled back as history moves forward somehow. Um, whether it's through a collapsing, I'm, I mean my my suspicion is that it's going to um, there's going to be an overweening, right? It was oh it, it gets too large and can't survive under its own weight, similar to the way the USSR did. That we'll have something along those lines, but. Um, one way or the other, citizenship now is is a multi-layered thing, and figuring out how to make that path clear, and then giving people, well, and then becoming a just place where there's not a, um, where it's not going to be used against you. Um, you know, th this is, I I um was in Iraq and was preaching at some of the churches in the, uh, over there. And one of the things that was really interesting is I was there at the two year anniversary of the legalization of Christianity. Mm. Right? So the, and there are celebrations, but when I was talking to one of the pastors of one of the churches that became a public institution, they bought a piece of property 
they said, you know, it's really hard. We had a split um, within a, a couple of months of the legalization of Christianity because about half of the pastors and the congregations in the city um, didn't believe that the legalization was real. They thought it was a trick. They thought it was a way to get them to come out of the shadows so they could be identified and then they would flip it on them and go back to being illegal. And that, but now they knew where you were and they knew who you were. And so half of the pastors and churches stayed invisible because they didn't trust, they didn't trust the government. And why would you? Right. Exactly. Why would you? And I, and I think we have done something similar to uh, immigrants. We haven't given them good reason to trust the, that the citizenship offer isn't a ploy now because it is a ploy, right? So that's the, you know, things like the dream act. Those were, that was a ploy. That was a way of padding the votes and they, they weren't, that you know, they, they, there wasn't a. Everybody knew it. Right? Everybody knows this is a way of padding the votes, um, and so the I, and I and honestly, I think the Republicans were only upset because they didn't think of it first. <laughs> so I'm not satisfied with this conversation right now. <laughs> There's, I, it's I, super hard. I mean, I don't think this is an easy one to solve. I don't know. There, a part of me feels like you know. Um, WWBD, what would Burke do? And that's kind of the question I'm having right now because I'm looking at the more and more I'm reading Burke, the more and more I'm realizing that for Burke, I think he would have a whole bunch of positions on the, um, the, the practical side of it, the legal side of it. He would have a whole bunch of answers for that. But he would argue that none of these are going to hold up apart from a virtuous people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. You know what I, I mean? That's the... Yeah. And so, like, it's I don't think that right now as we're answering, you can listen to some of the biggest and brightest of conservative talk radio and um, people who have conservative worldview and opinions. And they're like, oh, that's really creative. And nothing that I hear on there, do I ever find them preaching for a form of virtue? Yeah. Uh, what was what was the line that Burke said? He said, um, "Freedom um, lasts as long as a wolf uh, lasts as long as a sheep amongst wolves, right? Without virtue, right? And so you right. you don't yeah. get this freedom that we're all talking about and that we all want just by implementing certain laws and things in place. You have to have virtue if any of this is going to mean any sort of thing. And virtue is a kind of thing that you that." shows itself in public, which is the way Burke lived, but is developed and lived ultimately in private. <laughs> it's something that happens in a person's heart and mind, and those kind of convictions bubble out from their, their local places into the rest of society, yeah. right? And so the as you talk about immigration and you see how how much it lacks virtue and how it thinks about a human being – Here's the trick of the, of our federal government is, hey, we're not going to really arrest you. Yeah. Don't come over here. We're not really going to arrest you. It's not going to be anything. Come on over. Right. That's kind of the two different. And so they come and then, hey, we'll take care of you. We'll give you all this stuff. 
but it's contingent, right? It's contingent on something. It's not really your freedom, right? Yeah. There's no virtuous people at the end of the day operating here, right? This, this is the same thing I was thinking about with, if you want to know, if you're a person in the middle and you're thinking about, man, I don't really have an argument or a dog in the fight for pro-life or pro-choice, you know, let everybody do what they want to do. This is really simple. You need to ask yourself if you're a virtuous person. And then if you are, where are the virtuous people lining up on this? Because it's not hard to look at a woman who wants to kill her own child and say, well, that's not virtuous. Right. <laughs> because wherever the virtue is, wherever you find the most amount of virtue is where you're going to find the most amount of freedom. Those two go hand in hand. And so it's not hard to find everybody's trying to figure out what's the most freest place to live and why is that? Well, all you got to find is where's the virtue at? Right. Where do I see virtue living strong? And that's where you're going to see the most amount of freedom because virtue says God is the one who has given us laws. We're to flow in line with that and to be consistent with that and then to live with each other in a reasonable, understanding way, seeking to love and do great for each, each neighbor. That's virtuous, right? And, um, and fearing God in that process. When so it's not hard for us to find virtue, but you look at like you just described for the last 15, 20 minutes with the whole immigration thing and all the problems in it. There isn't any virtue inside of that type of system at all. Right. So yeah. part of the sad thing that happens with people who are running to America, they might have more freedom than where they were. But at some point, that type of system, that type of setup is not going to grant them a long term form of freedom at the end of the day. Right. Because virtue is lacking in that process. That's not going to lend well for you. Because so like the churches, you know, the churches are looking at in, in Iraq are looking at the virtue of the government and said there has been no virtue here. Right. <laughs> right. None. Why would we then trust them? To treat us well when virtue is lacking, why would we trust that we have freedom if there is no virtue in this government? Because if there's no virtue, there's nothing to hold these people to their convictions at the end of the day. And right. so it, it makes the people who come over here illegally because the system is broken and doesn't work stay underground as much as they possibly can. And maybe to two or three generations because they know that at any point, depending on how the vote swings versus the virtue that's inside of these people, we don't have a chance of staying here. Right. And so when you so then the 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 part that it seems like that Burke would want to spend his time really getting at at the bottom of this would be uh, uh, almost like Adams. We want a moral and upright people first. Yeah. Right. We don't have even while our whole we're having this whole destruction um, of our society. Our moral foundation, our biblical um, commitment to God and his world has to come to we have to come some sort of some sort of repentance about this that starts building virtue up again because right. we're our virtue is bankrupt. Well, and what's really interesting with Burke. So he went after the public wickednesses of the British Empire. Yeah, you know, he, and and it was the in for him it was the way that the Irish were treated, the Irish Catholics were being treated, or that they weren't given, um, that they were disenfranchised. So it, um, that fran franchisement we don't use that word any 
anymore, but um, has to do with uh, having the um, the rights of a citizen, right? So they were yeah. disenfranchised. They were not given the rights of a citizenship, which had to do with voting, but also had to do with the, uh, they were kept out of educa- the educational process. They were kept out of um, le- the legal profession, the medical profession, all sorts of things. So, um, so he went after that vehemently. And um, what's so interesting is be, even though he was a Protestant, um, he, he was, you know, working on defending their rights. There were all sorts of people that said, what are you doing? They're not your people. And he's like, that's not how this works. <laughs> right. So he, he resisted the, um, tribalization. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so, and then he went after, um, slave trade, right. Just, it was a blight. Uh, on and then he same went issue, after same issue right it's same a, issue the, the treatment of the uh, people in India by the British Empire right? so he so he went after the public sins um, and really hardcore right lost his position at times um, he he almost died penniless because of it um, because the way that a lot of politicians would survive was they would basically take bribes, um, mm. you know, to, to survive. So they, their paycheck wasn't enough and they would take bribes and he just refused his whole life and, you know, all of that. And so he almost, he almost lost everything because he spent his life going after um, the public or the corporate sins, the public sins of the, uh, of the empire of the British, of the crown. Um, now, and then, but he said, it's actually not enough just to go after what's wrong with the other side. You actually have to build up the, uh, a positive philosophy. It, you know, it's not enough to say, this is what's wrong with them. You have to build up a positive, uh, a positive philosophy. And I sent you that one quote by the, the, um, the, the Frenchman that, that spent a bunch of time with Burke said, what's Burke's philosophy? And he said, conservatism is enjoyment. That was Burke's philosophy, right? That he took joy in his life. So his argument was that um, that reality was beautiful, right? And so the, the best argument is to put on display the beauty of reality, right? And that that, that would resonate with the reality of people. So that moral, the, the, that, True morality, true virtue was a beautiful thing. Mm. Right? And so when you explained it and described it and, ma- and made it beautiful, that it would resonate with people and that they would want to be more virtuous. Now, he was a Orthodox Christian, so he understood that this was that these were all means that the spirit uses. You know, he um, but he he won over in his day. He won over most of the major and most popular poets to his position. And so they started. So a, a a major reason that conservatism took won the next generation was because all of the artists were won over by Burke. They were won over by the beauty of his arguments. The he he wrote an entire book on aesthetics, on the on aesthetical theory and the 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 resonance of beauty with reality. Right. So so he won over the the <laughs> poets, the storytellers, the dramatists of his day. Um, 
one of his early opponents was Samuel Johnson, who was the greatest literary mind of the day. By the end of his life, Samuel Johnson was arguing Burke's positions, right? Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Wordsworth began as progressives revolutionaries when they were young. By the end of their life, Burke had won them over to the conservative cause. And so they're writing uh, against the French Revolution by the end of their lives and writing in favor of of the beauty of of a, of true morality, the beauty of mm. the way morality resonates, um, and it's and it's a way of embracing the 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 goodness of creation, right? Morality is a way of embracing the goodness of existence, the goodness of being, and that's something that I don't think conservatives believe anymore. Which is what I, I mean. I think conservatives tend to be just as Machiavellian as progressives. I think um, in terms of if we have the power, then we get we can to define what's right and wrong. And, um, and, and uh, so we'll make compromises to gain power because power is the thing. Um, well, we, but the reality is a moral life is simply more beautiful. A moral uh, a moral society produces better art, produces better music, produces mm. better poetry, better stories, better movies. Right? More, uh, um, and and the that is a central part of what our argument needs to be. We produce art, poetry. We produce movies. We produce uh, television shows. We produce music. This is better because it it actually resonates with the with the moral realism uh that uh, of of reality that 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 reality has a moral shape and when you know the so if if you go to old um churches that are built old you know beautiful well architected churches that are built before the microphone right they mm-hmm. have a particular shape so that where when the pastor stands at the pulpit, that his voice is projected, and there's even acoustical uh, pews r- r- that push the sound up to ear level, right? So that the sound will resonate through the pew and and hit and go up to our ear level, right? Well, reality has a particular shape, and when you live a moral life, it it resonates and it's amplified by reality because you're speaking with the grain of reality. You're you're speaking into reality in a way that resonates. And um, so that beauty has to be, I think, central to our argument if we're ever going to make any headway back. So then does that need to be more of our criticism is that this isn't beautiful? Because when I think about um, here's a couple examples, I think about the patriarchy movement right now. And when I think about conservatives, one of the things that that they exist uh, they have grown in popularity for is being more anti something than pro something else. Right. So they've been yeah. anti egalitarianism inside of the patriarchy movement. They've been anti feminism. Right. Um, but I haven't seen them be very much, very strong um, pro women. So that so much so that you can say something like there isn't a more valuable human being on planet earth than a wife and a mother. Right. Right. And they would, and all of a sudden they'd be like, "Hey, hey, what about fatherhood? So important, 
It's like, yeah, right. No, I'm saying like for sure, no doubt. But you don't have a wife, you don't have a mother, you don't exist. <laughs> right? yeah. Like, like you, you do understand that, right? Like you do have that. It's so much so that they promote the beauty of women. There's a sense of protecting women without promoting the beauty of women, so that that people don't see that. And the same thing inside of the conservative movement that I've seen them being more anti-trans, anti, and I don't mind the being opposed to wicked things. I'm totally opposed to wicked things, but I'm opposed to wicked things because they mar the beauty of nature, right? Like that's, that's what I'm upset about is that you are, when, when a man dresses up in to take the place of a woman or someone mar uh, uh, decides to wear blackface, you know, what they're doing is insulting the beauty of the nature that God has given to these people. Right. And that's those two things run the same for me, blackface and, and and drag queen and uh, trans are doing the same thing. They're all marring the beauty and the image of a image bearer. And with something that God is trying to communicate to us, that's, that's part of the insult. But I find that there's more of a, and I'm not trying to use the left as a marker for how they, uh, how they see us. But if you, if you ask most people, what do conservatives represent? You don't get pro stuff. You get more anti-stuff, right? right? Anti-stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's if you ask conservatives, well, what does conservatism mean? Right. Well, it means that basically we want to conserve old traditions and oppose anything that's new. And that's not, but that's not conservatism at all. Burke yeah. didn't even like that form of conservatism. Right. Right. And so they don't there isn't um there isn't a vision for beauty ultimately at the end of the day inside of conservatism. And that has been bothering me for the longest is where is where's the beauty at? Yeah. And uh, and the thing is, is so I, I've seen a lot of people, um, I, so when it comes to art, I've seen a lot of people mock and oppose modern art and the modern art movement or the postmodern art movement and, because it's silly, right? I mean, it, it, it is <coughs> when, you know, the splatter paint and all that, it really is silly. There's not so, but it, if we were producing art that was beautiful, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have it would to. Never, it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't survive the day. Yeah. It wouldn't even be so, seen. Yeah. So you, the, the, um, but we don't even teach the history of art. You know, um, we don't, we don't even, it's not like there's a bunch of people going around saying, you know, this is all right, but it's no Botticelli, right? Because people don't even know Botticelli. They don't know art. They don't know the history of art. They don't know the greats. They're not familiar. They haven't been moved by beautiful art. And so um, when they stand in, some, in front of something that's not beautiful and they're told it's art, they they don't have anything to compare it to. Right. So it's not like they're saying, well, I was really moved by this beautiful art over here, or that beautiful art over there. Um, and this doesn't do that to me. Right. You know, Jason, this is funny. This goes back to our conversation last time we were talking about literature and why literature was so important. It's part of the, the tongue that we get defined by so that we all embrace this tongue, this English tongue. And so that is part of our culture, part of our 
who we are as a people. And as we were thinking, and this goes to what you were just saying, part of what has been the biggest, biggest attack on minority cultures, particularly black culture, because is is the the defining of black culture away from that. So they define that that ain't black, right? And so then that not yeah. being black all of a sudden separates them from anything that is part of the English tongue or language. Which yeah. by the way, if you've read um was it uh white liberals and back, black rednecks, you know yeah. that the the idea of whatever being black is don't exist anyway, right? Like that's <laughs> But but yeah. it's been the been the the, the that's most. Why been, that's why I have wrote I've written in Thomas Sowell for president for the last Every five time. elections. <laughs> and, but but the, the 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 thing that hurts is the segregation from a group of people from their roots, so that they can't embrace and know the beauty of their culture. That right. is your culture. That is your tongue. That is your people. Right. That's that's your group right there. There isn't that you don't have to try and create some subgroup that disconnects you and dislodges you from the historical covenantal reality. That's where you die it. Right. That's where cultures go to die is when you do that. But yeah. instead, embracing that and seeing the beauty of it, you're able to say, wow, we got a rich history. And you can attach yourself to it versus detaching yourself from it and be like, what do I start from? Right. Yeah. Like you, you become instead of becoming a fly in in a summer that fade away, you actually have a lineage now that you are entrusted with. You're entrusted with Mozart. Right. <laughs> You're entrusted. Right. Right. With all these well, that's different- the thing is every and every time someone is baptized, they're baptized into the inheritance of all things. Right. All those things become theirs. Right? That That's the prove it. I can't just say stuff like that. <laughs> no, you can't just say stuff. Prove it. <laughs> the um, yeah, I'm I am embarrassed that I don't have the Bible verse off the top of my head. I can, I can, I think I can make the theological having read um, while uh, Richard was it Richard Wallace's book on Calvin and the Table. I think I can make the theological argument. I'm trying to think of an exact verse. Um, oh, I could think of a few, but I want you to prove it. Um, Cause you made the statement, buddy. Uh, Revelation 21. Uh, so revelation 21. Then he who sat on the, this verse five, then he who sat Sat on the throne, behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the waters of life free him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he and he shall be my son. All right. So Dang we it. inherit all things. Oh, it right? keeps so, going. To the thirsty, <laughs> I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The only, uh, the one who conquers will have his, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my people. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
and for murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you get all things, or you get the lake of fire. Or you get the lake of fire, yep. And so... Which is so, another baptism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the anti-baptism. Yeah, it yeah. is, yeah. <laughs> but so... um. And so the process of history is the, the process of taking down the inheritance out of the attic, right? That's what all of history is, is we're taking the inheritance down from the attic. We're dusting it off. We're laying it out. We're trying to figure out how to use it, knowing oh. all of this is our inheritance, right? So um, wait, say that again. history is taken. The process of history is taken. The inheritance is, out of the attic. Yeah. It's going up, it finding it, saying, oh, here it is. Blowing, dusting it off, saying, "How do we use this? Because we've got an eternity with this, with with all things, and that's what we're going to be." Bro, you know, okay, I'm trying to find a keep. I, this is um, this this is a. Uh, it does two things. This is from Burke on page 45. He says, "Change is inevitable." He says that um, and is designed providentially for us. The larger conversation of society, properly guided, changes a process of renewal. But let change come as a consequence of a need generally felt, not inspired by fine-spun abstractions. And this is going to your point right here. This is what I want to get to. Our part is to patch and polish the old order of things, trying to discern the difference between a profound, slow, and natural alteration and some uh, infutation of, or some infutation of an hour of the hour. Right. So. That's that's exactly so he's saying we have a responsibility to take those things in the attic, bring them out of the attic. As you said that it hit me. It's like, oh, this is conservatism and to polish those things off and to say, okay, this thing, whatever this beautiful thing that we have as inheritance, how does it move on through time becoming more beautiful? So we polish it off. We pass it to the next generation and pass it to the next generation versus saying, Ah, what's this? And then move it along with the time as, you know, yep. in some other way. Yeah. Bonhoeffer in, in Life Together says the most destructive thing that the in the church is idealism, right? So, is to, to, instead of saying, what do we have here? How can we move move this particular community one step more towards godliness to say, what is the ideal and how do I impose that? Or how do I c- wow. come to this congregation and say, um, you guys are, are we got we to gotta fix you, right? We got to fix you from the ideal down instead of from the embracing the congregation as it is and saying, what does one more step towards maturity take? Right now, one more step towards maturity every yeah. year gets us a long way towards maturity versus the... Um, you know, the the guilt and the shame of idealism as our motivators, um, those things don't last. Um, the this well, is, this is a brand, you, and it makes you take the things out of the attic and throw them in the trash, right? Yeah, like yeah, and shame exactly. Just connect you from those beautiful things in the attic that you've been handed, right? The polishing off is to say, oh, well, that didn't work so well. But they had a lot of things that did, and there's a structure to this that they've got and they've built on. It was like, okay, let's build on that too. You polish it off and say, here goes, you know, <laughs> this is where they, we've talked about this before, this is where they shipwrecked that. Let's not shipwreck right. there. Let's right? not shipwreck there. Um, and, and let's that, keep. And, 
this also is a place where I think that people who are um, evangelicals find Catholicism attractive because it does have a sense in which they are willing to polish off the old, but they're never willing to move to the new, right? There isn't a progression right. ultimate. That's where their fall is. But at least it looks like it's not doing this um, individualistic kind of setup that we have right now running rampant inside of evangelicalism. Yeah. That's what it. That's what it looks like from the outside. But yeah, that yeah. The difficulty is then you get in there, and you know I've got I've got a lot of uh, a number of friends that have um, jumped ship and ended up Roman Catholic, and what they tend to say is after a little while they say it turns out that <laughs> none of, none of them really believe the stuff. Right. That's no. the that's the difficulty is the the is. Um, you know, they say, "Oh, here's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is what we believe." And then there's no because there's no um, discipline. They don't even believe their own yeah. catechism. Yeah, yeah. From the outside, you're right. So, I'm sorry, I interrupted you a moment ago. What were you saying? Uh, well, I was just going to say that um, guilt and shame as motivators are they don't work long term, right? You might get a little bit of momentum with some guilt or some shame, but every time you have to up the ante because you actually end up hardened by guilt and shame. You end up with, um, you, you grow, uh, your, your conscience, um, hardens under guilt and it hardens under shame. Whereas forgiveness keeps your conscience soft, right? So if you feel guilt and you realize that it's an objective thing, Oh, I really am guilty before God. And you go to the Lord and say, Father in heaven, please forgive me. Because Jesus died on the cross, he says, I forgive you. He takes the sin away and your conscience remains soft. Or you're, um, uh, and it's the same with shame. When you realize uh, that something you do is shameful and you go to the Lord and ask for covering, right? because Jesus died on the cross naked and took our shame, we receive the covering of the blood of Christ and our shame is taken away and our conscience remains soft. If guilt and shame become motivators, which is what happens in idealism, right? You see this right now with the, um, with in the church, you see this a lot in the legalism, but you see it in the progressive movement with things like um, environmentalism, you know, the guilt and the shame that gets pushed on us. The problem is you have to keep upping the ante. Upping, upping the guilt, turning the volume up on the guilt, turning the volume up on the shame to get the same reaction. Um, I, I realized recently that it's a little like heroin, right? That a little bit of heroin at first is a, you know, gets you really high, but then you have to keep using more and more and more. And guilt and shame work the same sort of way. You keep having to use more and more and more. You know, this is this is the classic. Um, you know, you you've got the that the aunt in the family or the the mother-in-law or the the um you know the the brother who is always using trying to make you feel guilty to get you to do what he wants and pretty soon they're like look maybe I'll just kill myself <laughs> right cuz they have to just right. keep upping the guilt they have to keep upping the shame to get the same amount of motivation out of a person right well god doesn't function on that economy Right, um, and, and the the God Nor doesn't does the world work like that either. The world doesn't work that way, right? God doesn't mature us on a guilt and shame economy. 
um, he forgives our sins, and so we fear him more, right? He takes away our guilt, he takes away our shame, and he changes our fundamental desires. Augustine says, "God, God, uh, when God wants to change us, He reveals to Himself to us the beauty of His Son, right? And that is what actually is a continual motivation. Because love, when you act out of love, it actually is a um, it's it's a renewable motivation, right? The more you love, the more renewed your love is to mo- uh, as a motivation. You know, that's that's something too that." You are because of the kind of being that you are made to be, you're the kind of being that expands. So you're going yeah. to expand either in love or in guilt. Right. And either love is going to continue to feel that expansion or guilt is going to continue to feel that expansion. And one of those is going to have a you're going to explode at some point. Like, like you say, just right. kill myself or you're going to serve with joy that keeps expanding and keeps growing at the other side of it. It's so um Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just thinking about that. That's one of the things, too, that's like when when you're looking, speaking of virtue and, and, and how Burke looked at things, if you're looking at the world in a way, in a virtuous way, then you're going to fill the, the world with virtue. Right. If you're yeah. thinking about it that way. But if you're thinking about it another way or a, that doesn't lead to human flourishing, that's what you start filling the world with. It, it, it doesn't work right. It's like putting diesel in an unleaded tank. It's not yeah. going to work the way you need it to work. It's going to hiccup. It's going to have problems. And Burke is like, you can't you can't work the world the way it's designed. This is where he keep he, and a couple of times you see this. He talked about the broken metaphysics of Rousseau. It's like it, the yeah. world doesn't work that way, which is really like so encouraging. Because I'm starting to see more and more because the world doesn't work that way that I know, regardless of what it looks like, this isn't going to be sustainable. Right. Right. I know long term this cannot be sustainable. So even though everybody is laughing at me for building the way that I'm building, I know something about the world that they are suppressing. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a, this is Abraham on his way up the mountain with Isaac. He right. Says he he why was he willing to sacrifice his son? He said because I believe in a God that raises the dead. Right. Yeah. I I I understand that the economy of this place is personal, and it's resurrection. Resur- it's a resurrection economy that is personally overseen by God the Father. God the Son, God the Spirit, right? It's not, it's not a machine. Um, it, it's not a, it's, it's not the, the, it's not a clock. It's not. It's, no, it's it, covenantal. It, yeah, it's covenantal. It's personally overseen. It's not a bureaucracy. Um, and so, I know that being faithful to God, who raises the dead, is the way. Um, to move in, move with the grain, to move with reality. Um, and it's such a different way of, of approaching things. And that's why David can pray, Lord, I'm surrounded on all sides. You promised to take care of me. I, I, you promised to provide for me and I'm looking around and I don't see it. So where are you? Mm-hmm. Right. That, that, that he, he on can say, lap. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He can pray those prayers, those personal prayers, um, because he has promises from a personal God. He he's not 
he's not um, living in a bureaucracy where he has to say, okay, I'll take things into my own hands, which is what Abraham does um, when Isaac isn't born and Isaac isn't born and Isaac isn't born. He says, I'll just take things into my own hands. Where's, where's your servant, Sarah? Bring her to me, you know, or, oh, you're bringing me your servant, Sarah. Okay. I'll take things into my own hands where he's, he was, forgot for a moment. That's not a bureaucracy. Bro, I, that was one of the, that was none of those moments for me, like um, the uh, the rainbow robe where it's the garden repeated all over again. Here's the promises of God. This is what's going to happen. It will come. The woman then comes to bring the fruit, taste, eat here. And it's like, <laughs> oh, and what does Sarah do? She does it. You know, like what is what? Hey, why don't you, we can make this happen. It's like, but that's not how the blessing's supposed to come. <laughs> like, right, what does right. Abraham do? All right. <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's, no. And that's the re- repetition again of that story, that narrative. Like, that's not how it's supposed to go. And Abraham's supposed to say, no, that's, that's, yeah. that's wrong. He should have stopped it right there. And he didn't stop it. He's supposed to lead his family. Yes. Right? Yeah. And say, so, no, this is not how, this, this is, we, we don't live, we, we, this, this is not the the kind of place that everything is answered with scientific knowledge. Right. Right. Yeah. You might not be able to figure out, but God has, and that's what we're going to trust. So what are some, what are some things that you, if, if you were going to inject a antibody into conservatism from Burke, what would be some of the things that you would put into that, that injection that from, from, from Burke? I mean, I think the the antibody is the, a couple of things. Um, I think, but I, I think right <laughs> at the center of it is that the truth is beautiful, mm. and so the we don't actually have to answer every objection, answer every uh, opposition. Right? That presenting the truth is actually an argument. It, and that because the truth is beautiful, it's going to resonate. Um, and if the truth doesn't resonate with the people, then it's because of a moral failing of the people. But it's still the truth that sets us free, right? So that we um, that we actually and and I think this is something that um, often in apologetics we get wrong in the Christian realm as well. Is we think we need to be able to answer every possible thing, right? You know, we need to study all of the cults and all of the false religions and study every heresy. And, um, and we do, we do that without ever getting around to coming to a deep and abiding, uh, understanding of the truth, right? But that actually is the most important thing is a deep, uh, a deep abiding understanding of the gospel is the best defense against heresy. Right? Mm. And politically speaking, a deep and abiding understanding of the beauty of the truth, right? When the beauty of the truth moves you, you are safer than um, knowing every in and out of the progressive movement. So, um, I mean, so I think that's, that's one thing. Um, And then I think the other thing is just the, the historical nature uh, of the work of God um, is something that we, that cons- conservatives tend to 
work think that our job is to work from a different set of ideals than the other side that we've just got better ideals rather than saying well actually we're a part of a long story and our job is to is to complete our act well right so we're with what has been given us right yeah exactly so we're like the 80th generation since abraham or something like it's i know it's less than 90 what's it's been less than 90 are you serious yeah yeah so um it's our job to do the this 80th act well right if that was act one right if the preface was the first 11 you know that's the that's the cold open the first 11 chapters of the story is the cold open credits come abraham enters the scene that's the beginning of act one um you know we're we're in act 30 you know something like that and it's our job to just faithfully be in our act and that means knowing what came before and knowing what we're trying to pass on no that's not what dispensationalism told me (laughs) just the last act jason we're the last ones yeah no that's that's the one of the funny things man i i just i just read uh pope the story of uh uh, gilbert i can't remember uh, which pope he was with it, what his throne name, his pope name was, but he's the pope that in the uh, late nine hundreds over into the one thousands, and this was before the belief in like the 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 papacy being in, infallible and all that. So he's just the bishop of Rome, um, and uh, he. But so there's a big Roman university, um, a big Vatican university in Rome. It wasn't called Vatican University yet, but I think that's what it's called now. And he he was a mathematician. He was born very very poor. Entered the second estate when he was young. Um, became a monk and then a priest and then a bishop and then ended up the bishop of Rome, pope. And but he was a great mathematician. He was the one that introduced the um, Arabic numerals. Right, we use Arabic numerals um, instead of Roman numerals for our math. And he was the one that introduced that. He started a a uh, program, an exchange uh, program with Islamic universities down in Africa um, because some of the greatest scholars in the world when it came to math and science and Aristotle and different different things were in Africa. And so they would exchange um, universities. He worked really hard to establish missionary churches in Islamic areas um, to be able to convert the the Islamic um, people. So, and, uh, um, but one of the things that he lived through was the belief that the year 1000 would be the end of the world. <laughs> so it's the same arguments the dispensationalists use about being the last generation and doing the math and you know, all of that. Everybody thought that, um, or it, it took over the imagination of the church for 40 years or so that, that the end of the world was coming. And he had to just keep saying over and over, except it's not right. We, 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 we've got to, we've got to make it through. And um, it's the, the book was called uh, the abacus and the cross. It's a really great, great book. A lot of fun. Um, and you learn that. Uh, so it's before the crusade. So there was this period before, um, before the, uh, 
uh, Islamic people started attacking, that there was some some uh, much more of a philosophical debate between um, at, where Islam was treated more like a Christian heresy than um, than a separate religion altogether. So it's a really, but everybody's always thought they lived in the last generation. I mean, not everybody, but that has happened before. And what it does is it causes uh, the church to quit expanding, quit it's, sending yeah, missionaries. Well, and yeah, it makes you do a, a philosophical a philosophical inquiry into the origin of ideas. Um, is that Edmund Burke's book on aesthetics that you were talking about? Uh, the Sublime and the Beautiful? Yeah, yeah. The Sublime the one, and the okay. Beautiful. Yeah. All right, I just made sure I bought it so I didn't have to. It's yeah, not very long. But it's really, it's really interesting. You know what? The other thing that a takeaway from from Burke that I thought was super helpful for me was to reestablishing the idea and concept of rights. So I think you're hitting for sure the foundational pieces and some of the areas that are detailed that is kind of like for rights. Right now, the biggest scream and cry is you are removing my rights from me. Right. In the Roe v. Wade situation. And um, people are saying, I have the speed Internet. I have the right to I, I think they just spent 64 million, was it 64 billion dollars in um, 64 billion to make sure that uh, tribes areas as well as um, minority communities and pretty much everywhere rural areas have high speed internet and don't have to pay necessarily for it. There's like some sort of $30 credit or $50 credit, depending on where you say you can have a credit. And it's a right now to have high speed internet because of what's happened with um, COVID by the way. So high speed internet, it's a right, the right to medication and Medicare. Right. And, just the, everything is now considered a right. And so we have lost what a right is. We've lost the concept and reality of, of what a, a basic right is. And part of what we're arguing for is a right under the law, right? That's what we were talking about earlier. It's like, what is yeah. your right under the law? What are protected under the law that you have a right to that, that everybody is treated the same under. And the idea and concept of that right is absolutely lost so it doesn't right. exist anymore so that a right now is mixed up with the desire my desire to have high-speed internet is a right and what burke talks about and does and he reestablished for me is that a right it seems the way that he's defining it then becomes a point if it's a right then it's something that someone else has to provide for you right and that's what the left truly gets it is a right and because it's a right you then have to provide it for me so that's why you see cake bakers getting hit. It's my right yeah. to get married. And so then, therefore, you have to provide it for me. They're not wrong in thinking how a right works. What they're wrong in thinking is they have a right to do something in which they don't have a right to do. And so if it's a right, then you have a your responsibility in order to be able to do that thing. If it's a right that you have high-speed internet, then I must be the one who to provide it for you in some way. Someone has to provide that right for you in some way. If it's a right that I have citizenry because of my humanity and being a citizen, then I need to be able to have the structure set up to vote. <laughs> right. Right. That needs to be provided for me. And what Berg does is reestablish the idea and concept of what rights. I was trying to find the exact page because it was so good. I was like, oh, that's 
that's a one of the areas we've completely like bankrupted ourselves on understanding is what a right is. Oh yeah, here it goes. <clears throat> we gotta go. But I just wanted to read this real quick. Um So he says the true natural rights of man then are equal justice, security of labor and property. So equal justice, right? Security yeah. of labor and property. So the, the I would say that would he be arguing that the government or um, the civil magistrate has a right to protect your your labor and your property, right? So if you work yeah. for something and you you have the you've accumulated it, it should be protected so no one else can take yeah. that away from you. I'm sure what he would say without due and, process. And the right to to work, right? And the right so to the work, right is, yeah. Security of labor and property, yeah. Yeah. And then the amenities of civil and institutions and benefit of orderly society. I was like the, the amenities of civil institutions. What is that? So the civil institutions, that would be like um, anything that the, all the institutions of the government. So the right. judicial system, the this would be where the ability to vote, you know, providing a place to vote, um, that that's the, the that that's a that would be a right. Um, when a, what other civil institutions would have existed? Well, he, in his and, and, I'm sorry, I'm, I might have the amenities of civilized institutions. So that would be the same thing, though. So these these institutions have an order. They have um, <coughs> a way to engage that is civilized and common and protected. So you can't go like and threaten other folks and voting and stuff like that. I'm sure that those things are protected, civilized institution. I can go there yeah. without threat or harm or. Um, coercion of one way or the other and the benefit of orderly society that would be like you know police you know um uh the legal system actually being uh, uh done in a way that due process all those type of things yeah. but th that's that's a, that's a small list right that's you're right. right that's a small it's not a huge vast list of like okay internet cable got to make sure you have housing you know that's a right you got to have housing right that's not a right and we've forgotten even listen to conservatives talk, they've moved off into, well, it's not left, right? This is rights, but in a conservative way. And we've allowed all these other things. So when we look at bills and we, we should be passing any this stuff because it's not a right for them to have anyway. And so yeah. it's just one of the things, and go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it's the difference between you know, rights to something, right? You have, you have the, if, if somebody, like you, you see, you you hear. Let's, let's we can even talk about one that's maybe more controversial, right? Do we have a right to an education? If you if we have a right to an education, then it's somebody's responsibility to provide that service, right? So um, that otherwise, my human rights are being violated. Um, right, this, right, exactly. It so that's a right to something, not a right from something. So if I have a right to uh to a, a peaceful society, then that's a that's basically somebody is violating my rights if they sneak into my home and try and rob me. Right? right. They're violating my rights. If I if but if they're if nobody's coming into my house and I'm just sitting there, you know, I'm if I'm a teacher and I'm not teaching, then I'm violating somebody else's rights. Right. Right. 
so it's a it's do we it's a right from a right from something versus a right that to, to something. that's the thing about we talked about before so important positive law versus negative law right yeah almost everything we're doing now is positive the ten commandments are not they're negative right it's limiting and so yeah. there are things that are virtuous inside of the positive side of the individuals should be doing those are virtues right that we want to do right. so you seek the good name of your neighbor right but because you haven't it, the the part in which that was restricted is you can't harm him right <laughs> like you right. can't harm him now you should be seeking the good um, nature of your neighbor his good name and so on and so forth but if you don't choose to do that, that's not like there's a civil code in which we say, hey, you didn't seek three times today your neighbor's good name. Therefore, you need to be punished. <laughs> right. So, yeah. But I, I, anyway, I got to run. But I, is there anything else you think we need to walk away with from Burke? Because I, I just thought that the idea and concept of rights, particularly right now, Burke really does a great job of defining those things. He saw a long time ago just how obscene it would become if we started saying everything was a right. And this was from the revolutions. The revolutions were arguing this kind of thing, which made me say even more so, Jason, oh my goodness, we're in the middle of a revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in the middle of a revolution right now. Right. We are, it seems thing that our government is bending over towards and bending towards and giving to people. Oh, it's your right for internet. Whoa, whoa, that's that's a revolutionary idea according to American society. You don't have a right to internet like that. You know? Yeah, I mean, but but we the this particular revolution has been creeping in since the 20s. That's the problem. Is now we're just expanding we're we're expanding the things that are a right, right? So public education as a right is something that um, I think was the that was the nose of the camel because everybody looked at it and said, well, I don't want to keep kids from being able to read. Right. You know, it's right. so rather what than a monster. saying, yeah, what a mon yeah, what kind of monster keep wants to keep people from being able to read? Um, the, the, the irony is that the literacy rate has gone down. Right. And, but that was the original argument is back in the dark ages, nobody could read the, um, but in America, before public education, you had a higher literacy rate than you have now. So, the the uh, if the public education's job was to educate, then it's been a miserable failure. Now, it's possible that there was a something else that they were designed for, but the, um, we know that what they haven't done is educate well because we have a, an uneducated populace now. We had an educated populace before. So, and, and I just um, want to say, to, and I want to add to that too, though, is people have to understand more and more education and what it's for. Part of part of why you, even with people who are extroverted and seem well educated because they have degrees and went to college, they still can't follow a logical argument. That's a failed education. Yeah, you might as well be illiterate in so many other ways if you can't follow a way of thinking and logical arguments because you're going to be almost as bad to society from the things that you create than a per as well as a person who would be illiterate in the things they create. At least a person who could be illiterate can work certain jobs that create human flourishing. A person who has a bad education in public society can diminish in more than one way a whole society in a way that an illiterate person could never do. 
<laughs> right. We have, you know, I mean, the it's it's a it is it's I I, I once you know that was standing out in front of a church and talking to a guy that was walking by walking his dog, and uh, I was explaining to him the story of Jesus and Jesus being raised from the dead. And he was like, raised from the dead. What do you mean? Like he was dead and came back. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead. He was like, that's crazy, man. I said, have you never heard that before? He's like, what do you mean heard that? Is this common knowledge? Guy had a degree, right? The guy was, a, had a bachelor's degree. He was a graduate oh my of college and he had never heard Jesus rose from the dead. He was a, he went to a, an American university. He was oh, raised in America and never heard that Jesus rose from the dead. So you think, well, what did you read? How right. could you have gotten all the way through 16 grades and never come across the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead? That's, Any form so of literature at all. At all. Yeah. It's the, I mean, this is, this is the point that, that Jordan Peterson um, yes, makes. I was thinking that, about that. Yeah. yeah is that, the literature underneath all of the literature of the Western of Western civilization is the Bible, right? So it is, so you can't actually understand the Western literature without the Bible. And, and he just says that that's the reality. I don't, as far as I understand, he's not himself a Christian. He doesn't believe in that, but he, he's coming. man. see, I, I think it's probably true, but you've got other guys that say that too. Like Neil Gaiman, he's, um, he's just gr a great storyteller. He's a uh, kind of weaver of yarns in English English literature. Um, he he, I've heard him say a couple of times something along the lines of somebody that says I want to be a storyteller for a living but hasn't read the Bible and studied it. He said I just don't believe them because it's the most popular book of stories ever in the history of the world. Every time it goes into a new culture, it immediately becomes the most popular book of stories in that culture. So, so if you want to be a storyteller, but you've never studied the Bible, he said, I just don't believe you that you want to be a storyteller. <laughs> mm. Mm. And he's not a Christian. He's a, he, he's a novelist. Uh, he's a good novel. He's a great novelist. He's, um, but he's, he can see that it's the most popular book of stories ever. So, if you want to write popular stories, you should try and figure out how it is that how it is that these stories continue to resonate with people. And I think that's what Burke is arguing is the truth is that sort of thing. It will resonate with people because it's beautiful, right? And that we don't have to manipulate. We don't have, it's not, we don't have to, um, it's not a power game, right? That it's a, truth and beauty game that we're that we're engaged in it's a storytelling contest that's been going on since the devil entered into the garden and said half god said right that we're in a storytelling contest and that the truth and the beauty um of goodness uh, does prevail if we believe it and put it out there and so then that's something that i think conservatives definitely need to learn yeah, I've walked away with this, especially from Burke. I think he says he, oh, where's this? I think I, te did I text you this line or did I text Jared? Which is, Jared's here, by the way, waiting for me to leave here. Um, it's patiently waiting. I might have sent it to, I didn't think I sent it to Jared. We got, we got to have Jared on for one of these conversations. Jared definitely has to come on for one of these conversations. 
That's, I must have sent it to you, Jason. Did I send you a text last night? Yes. You, As yes, Alfred with Coben justly remarks of Burke, his ideal is neither Protestant or Arrestitarianism nor Catholic theocracy is much more like the kingdom of God on earth. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Let that settle in. Let that it settle is. in. This is- this is why I always tell people, no, I'm not a libertarian. I'm a, I'm a conservative, but there aren't any anymore. <laughs> right. The conservatism has been, has been walked away from by the conservative parties uh, over and over and over. But it, when it but rears that's, but its that's, head, it rears its the, head powerfully. Well, and, and hopefully it's rearing its head right here on Knox Unplugged because this is the thing. Conservatism, I don't care who you are. Presbyterian, charismatic, 1689 Baptist, and I don't care who you are, conservatism at the root of it is the kingdom of God here on earth working its way through the lump. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. So then what do your laws reflect? What does beauty look like as a society flourishes? We can almost everything now that I look at on the news, I look at in the in papers that I'm reading, every article that I come by, my question has been. Where is the beauty in this or is it ugly? And if it's ugly, then yeah. I need to talk about it like it's ugly. Right. And if it's beautiful, it, I need to talk about the beauty of it. Right. When, pe- when people ask me what is conservatism, because, I, you know, when you say something like that, people say, well, wait, OK, well, what is conservatism? I always say conservatism is that it's the government's job to protect a space for me to play baseball with my kids and that the baseball with my kids is the important thing. Mm. The government doesn't do anything important. The baseball with your kids is the important thing, right? That, that, um, and I've never had anybody say, I don't, I don't want that. Right. Everybody is like, Oh yeah, that's different. That's not the Republican party. I'm like, yeah, it's not. Because it's beautiful. Yeah. Right. It's, but it's beautiful, right? That, that the argument for the truth of conservatism is that it's beautiful. Jared's tearing up my studio, basically getting up, leaving. Like he's telling me it's time to go. So I got to go. 